Welcome to bonus episode 438 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We'll be interviewing today in this bonus episode Andy Greenberg, who's the author of Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency. Andy is a longtime senior writer for Wired Magazine, and he's I think maybe our only two-time book author interview on the podcast. So, Andy, welcome back. Thank you, Stuart. No, I'm honored to, to be back, especially if, if that is like a, a rare privilege. Very rare, because we only interview people who've written books I actually wanted to read. So it, it, already there's a t- it's a tough bar to get over. And to do it twice, given how impatient I am with some books, uh, <laughs> I, I discovered maybe 15 years ago, uh, I don't know about you, Andy, but I was raised to believe that books were sacred. You didn't turn down the pages of books to, to mark your place. That they, they had to be treated with great respect. And the first day I said, this author is insulting my intelligence, and I actually threw the book in the trash, was traumatic and liberating. So I have done that now, but I've never done that with one of yours. <laughs> oh, well, I appreciate that. That's a, I guess that's a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I, I said that to somebody else. I said well, that, that he'd written a great book, and at no point in reading it did I think he was insulting my intelligence. And he looked at me as though, well, that's not much of a bar to get over. <laughs> 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 anyway, okay, let's talk about the book. Why don't you give me and our listeners a very quick 30-second overview of what the book's about? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I have... I'm not sure this is 30 seconds, excuse me if I go a little long here, because this is a story that for me is like kind of, you know, it's like a big chunk of my career. I, I have been writing about like online anonymity as a kind of subject for more than a decade. And I wrote a, a book starting back in 2010 about the cypherpunks, this this sort of group of, of mostly libertarian men who like thought that they could use encryption to, to take power from governments and give it to individuals. And that gave rise to all kinds of, you know, interesting phenomenon, like everything from, you know, VPNs we use every day to WikiLeaks and, and you know, very subversive. And, and like signal. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, all of the ways that people seek privacy and often try to, like, flout law enforcement today, a lot of that came out of this group. And, and so in 2011, I was very primed to, you know, to hear about this thing that I stumbled on called Bitcoin, which was described to me, this is, when I wrote this first piece about it for Forbes magazine, Bitcoin was worth a dollar at the time, just to give you a sense of how long ago that was. It was described to me as like untraceable cash for the internet. Like this was part, part of what's interesting about this is that you can put digital unmarked bills in a briefcase and send it across the internet to anybody in the world without revealing your identity. And, you know, the kind of reporter that I am, you know, like I was immediately drawn to this as like, you know, thinking, this would unlock a whole new world of subversive stuff on the dark web and like drug deals and money laundering and all that. And all that did happen. You know, that happened over the next few years. I mean, the Silk Road popped up onto my radar just a few months later. But then now, like looking back fully a decade since then, well, really starting in 2020 is when I kind of slowly realized this, that coin is the opposite of untraceable. That for those who could kind of truly decipher all the clues in the blockchain, it is actually extremely traceable and far more easy to follow the money than traditional finance. And and that's when I started to 
look for, you know, look deeper into Bitcoin and cryptocurrency tracing and found that there had been kind of a small group of detectives that had used this incredible investigative technique, incredibly powerful investigative technique to go on this spree of busts and takedowns and, and just like, you know, turn the lights on on one cyber criminal operation after another that believed that they were untraceable and anonymous. So that's the story yeah. of the book, you know, this kind of surprise factor and how it was exploited by one, well, not one team, but like kind of a handful of, of investigators who kind of stumbled upon this super weapon that none of their targets suspected, you know, was possible. Yeah, so I, I, I was going to say that I, if I had to give this a short description, it would be Silk Road, the sequel, because this is all fallout. This is all stuff that happens after Silk Road, the Silk Road bust in which the Dread Private uh, Roberts, Ross Ulbricht, is busted. And sort of like the PayPal mafia, the folks that participated in that in one way or another all spread out across the government and start busting other people. And and you tell the story of three or four of them who really started to use these tools. And so I, and I guess I will say the other thing that's going on here is this is against the backdrop of the complete unraveling of the original hippie vision for the internet as a deeply decentralized mechanism by which people can unfiltered express their view and find a, an audience. And now, of course, in the last 10 years, while Bitcoin's been unraveled, so has the idea of a decentralized internet to the point where people have given up on Bitcoin and given up on the web and are trying to come up with Web3 using some of the tools that that Bitcoin and blockchain made possible to see if they can decentralize it. A an endeavor that I think is doomed from the start. But well, that's not where we're here about. Yeah, yeah. Unless you want to respond to that. Well, first of all, I think you're right that the Silk Road is kind of like the inciting incident of this story and, and not the creation of the Silk Road so much as like the takedown. I mean, the Silk, Silk Road was the first dark web drug market. It was, it did seem to symbolize, I, I, I believed that it that it represented the the impossibility of, of tracing cryptocurrency because after all, that's why the Dread Pirate Roberts, the creator of the Silk Road, adopted this this you know seemingly anonymous new form of money for his black market and as far as we can tell cryptocurrency tracing was not actually used to identify Ross Ulbricht you know to 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 the, right. to, to find out that he was the dread pirate robert to take down the silk road so that's not part of this story exactly it's but it's but it's sort of what leads to the whole story i think you're right then in, in a way this book is the sequel to the silk road i i was very impressed with nick bilton's book american kingpin which you may have read oh, it's and, a great book. and yeah. i see this book in some ways as a as a sequel to that but but with a very different conceit which is like you know the silk road was all based on the idea that bitcoin was anonymous and potentially untraceable and it turned out to be the opposite and so that actually creates in some ways like an even kind of crazier police procedural drama of, you know, when when these investigators found just how how powerful invest, you know, cryptocurrency tracing would be and 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 took down, you know, actually like sites like Alpha Bay that were ten times the size of the Silk Road at at its peak. Right. And so let's first let's let's clean up a little from Silk Road. Some of the most colorful characters in the book are government agents who went bad, who were participating in one way or another in dealing with Silk Road issues, and who ended up stealing pretty large sums 
from Silk Road and ultimately getting caught by these tracking tools because they they also believed the hype about uh, Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean so, that is that is in some ways like the proof of concept case that this all begins with. And you know, the, the, one of the reasons that I that I do tell the Silk Road story in a, a bit, you know, as more than just a kind of prologue, is because yeah, as you say, like about you know, well, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bitcoins kind of went missing from in, in the takedown of Silk Road, and and meanwhile, my sort of protagon- main protagonist of the book, T. Green Gumbarian, heard about these suspicious activity reports filed by. A cryptocurrency exchange that this guy, Carl Mark Force, a DEA agent, was cashing out hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bitcoins of unknown origin and essentially traced those bitcoins for the first time ever in a criminal investigation to show that Carl Mark Force, this DEA agent's bitcoins, were coming from the Silk Road, that he had in fact been selling law enforcement information to the Dread Pirate Roberts and also trying to extort the Dread Pirate Roberts, really anything that he could think of to try to squeeze money out of the target of his investigation. And then incredibly, it turns out there was a second corrupt agent, a Secret Service agent named Sean Bridges, who was also stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin from the Silk Road, and they didn't even know about each other. And they're, you know, they were actually both working in Baltimore, somehow not even aware that the other one was also just trying to you know, just in a very corrupt way, just lay hands on any of this supposedly untraceable cash that they could seize. And so well, I don't want to go deep in this, but what is the essential understanding? What are the essential technical mechanisms that allowed the authorities to track Carl Forrest and Sean Bridges down to, to show that their transactions came out of illegal theft from Silk Road? Well, there's a reason why it was the first case. It was easier, I would say, than like some of the subsequent ones. It didn't require particularly like groundbreaking blockchain analysis to do this. Like that's in part because the cryptocurrency exchange that I mentioned, Bitstamp, gave T. Green the addresses. You know, they they were cooperating, and then on the other side of it, the Silk Road had been taken down. So the team of FBI and IRS and DHS agents who had taken down the Silk Road had all of the Silk Road's addresses, Bitcoin addresses as well. So that meant for Tigran Gambarian, he could actually just kind of sit down and as he puts it, Tigran Gambarian, by the way, is an IRS criminal investigator who kind of is the, you know, the main detective in this book and, and did what nobody thought was possible at the time, which is just to, as he put it, hand trace the money to show that it traveled from one address to the next to the next and started at the Silk Road and ended at Karl Mark Force's cryptocurrency exchange accounts. Now you don't always have like both ends of the of the trail. And that is where more advanced cryptocurrency tracing techniques come in. And around the same time the Tigran Gambarian did that, First, Sarah Mickeljohn, a, a researcher at University of California, San Diego, and her co-authors published this, this seminal paper that kind of laid out new ways to identify the owners of Bitcoin addresses and to show sometimes that dozens or hundreds or sometimes millions, actually, of addresses belong to a single person or service. And that was one of the big steps in kind of cutting through the pseudonymity of Bitcoin. I mean, we, we once thought 
the reason that we all were like, I should say I at least, once believed that even though you could see every transaction on, on the blockchain, it could still somehow be anonymous was because it didn't seem like there was any way to prove which Bitcoin address belonged to which person. And Sarah Micklejohn was like the one who began to show how, yes, you can actually start to show that like actually these whole clusters of addresses belong to a single person or service. And then if you trace the money to a cryptocurrency exchange, that exchange sometimes has you know collected their identifying information to, to comply with know your customer requirements. Or sometimes you can interact undercover basically with one of those clusters. And if you do a deal with the Silk Road or just put money into it and take it out again, and then you see which addresses you, you interacted with, Sometimes that's part of a whole cluster and you can now say, oh, that cluster is the Silk Road. And so Sarah Micklejohn and her, you know, her collaborators were the first to show some of these tricks to pull patterns out of the blockchain and, and start to identify people and follow the money. Yeah, I noticed that another one of the early analysts here was Nick Weaver, who appears regularly on the podcast. And uh, oh, really? I was pleased yeah. to see that he he made it into your book, and he's he's deeply down on cryptocurrency, and apparently right from the start was enthusiastic about helping law enforcement go after people who had been misusing cryptocurrency. Right. I didn't include this in the book, but he is often referred to cryptocurrency as prosecution futures. Like, that's what you're actually buying, is your own... <laughs> <laughs> prosecution it's like kind of a convoluted term but it, but it, but yes he yeah i mean as you refer to he he actually was like so kind of affronted by the fact that i don't know that like well eventually that the defense in ross Lulberg's case was claiming that his bitcoins didn't come from the silk road that he wrote an email to the prosecutors and said i can prove that it did i can trace this money and they and they did do that at Ross Ulbricht's trial. But nonetheless, you know, that's still, again, kind of cheating because there they had Ross Ulbricht's laptop, they had his server, they're just following it from one to the other. It's only after that that, you know, Sarah Micklejohn's techniques, after they were adopted by Chainalysis, this kind of, you know, I would say kind of the behemoth of the the budding cryptocurrency tracing industry, the startup, that they started to implement those techniques and create tools that made them Autom you know, the automated those techniques, made them easy to use and allowed law enforcement to really begin this bonanza of busts and takedowns. And the private company that is most respected in this area and has done the most to develop all these, you know, what, what I think you could call tricks and tools and protocols is Chainalysis. They're a big company now. They kind of got their start in one of the early scandals involving Mt. Gox, when Mt. Gox just suddenly failed and everybody wondered what happened to the money. And do you want to tell us a little bit about how that actually played out? Because it turned out that Mt. Gox was systematically looted over a very long time. That's right, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, first I should say, like, there's a bunch of companies in this industry now. I don't want to offend any of them by saying that Chainalysis is, the, by, like, agreeing okay. with you that Chainalysis is the most respected. But they are the first, and they're probably the biggest, and they have the most customers. And I've heard, like, I don't know, I've heard that there's, I've heard people say that they are, like, the Coke to other people's Pepsi and cryptocurrency tracing. But I don't know. I'm not, like, sponsoring anybody here. But the, the, the origin story of Chainalysis is part of, like, the fun of this, because it's Michael Groninger, this Danish I would say a kind of true believer in Bitcoin's potential started to to like create this cryptocurrency tracing tool called Reactor, and then just happened to meet Tigran Gambarian, the IRS 
criminal investigator. In fact, just as he was doing that second tracing task of, of identifying the corrupt Secret Service agent, Sean Bridges. So they actually worked together on that second Silk Road corrupt agent case. And that was when Tigran and Tigran Gaberian and Michael Groninger became this kind of very odd couple who combined forces to, and I would say like the, the kind of like, that was the genesis of this partnership between IRS criminal investigations and chain analysis that is sort of at the center of the book. Together, they, they really are the main characters, I would say. And, and, but then it just happened that Tigran Gaberian was investigating BTCE this very shady cryptocurrency exchange that was really a money laundering service. It, it had no know your customer requirements at all. And it was becoming apparent by this time that in 2015, 2016, that BTCE was kind of like a black hole where all sorts of criminal money was ending up and being cashed out. And meanwhile, Michael Groninger, in his very first kind of pro bono job after founding Chainalysis, agreed to try to track down the missing half billion dollars of stolen Mt. Gox money that you just referred to. You know, their Mt. Gox had been hacked and bankrupted by unknown, you know, perpetrators. Some people thought that it was an inside job that like Mark Carpellis, the, the founder of Mt. Gox had taken the money. But it turns out that no, Mt. Gox was hacked and this, and, and together, Michael Groninger and T. Green showed that in fact, the Mt. Gox money was flowing into BTCE, where it was being cashed out. The stolen Mt. Gox funds were being cashed out through BTCE. And then they actually proved that together that the person who was putting that money into BTCE was also involved in the creation of BTCE, that actually BTCE seemed to have been created as a money laundering operation just as a way to cash out this giant, the giant fruits of this <laughs> Mt. Gox heist. You know, it's, yeah, it's, so, it's like, it, 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 of course you, you want to consolidate your business downstream. And so he said, I need a money launderer that can handle enormous amounts of money. And there isn't one. So he took the money that he'd already stolen and used it to form BTCE, it looks like, and then started laundering money through BTCE and then picking up other business. It was a, it was a great story. That guy, his name is Vinick, I think. Yes. He's never been caught, right? No, he has been. Sorry. He, he in oh. fact, so he was, he was arrested eventually on a vacation. He's a Russian man. He was arrested on vacation in Greece, has since happened with Russians whose extradition is sought, like he made that mistake and then served time in prison in France and now has just been extradited to the U.S. to face uh, charges. Okay. So, so I should say that like he's now, he's been convicted of money laundering in France he still, I guess, is innocent until proven guilty of like having created BTCE, of having, you know, he claimed to me that he was just a pawn of the real villains here and that, that he was just like a lowly programmer who worked on BTCE and didn't have any idea that, you know, shocking that there could be any money laundering involved in this operation. So, you know, I guess we'll, uh, we'll see. We'll, yes. yeah. this, is, this is, of course, this is also what Ulbricht's story was. And, and that's why he chose the Dread Private Roberts. Oh, the Dread Private Roberts, you know, and a different guy comes along every 15 years and takes the name. So it wasn't me. It was, it was the other Dread Private Roberts. Yeah. Okay. So Vinick is on his way to the U.S. to be tried. The next big case is the successor to Silk Road, Alpha Bay. And the guy who starts Alpha Bay has much better OPSEC than all of these guys, as far as I can see. 
still gets caught. How come? Well, let's see. I mean, he ha- he he does have he he has. You know, this is Alexander Kass, a French Canadian man who had moved to Bangkok and become the kingpin of this dark web crime market. That I think uniquely, what made Alpha Bay so successful at first, at least, was that it kind of combined the spheres of the dark web devoted to fraud and and hacking and cybercrime with the even more lucrative part of the dark web that the Silk Road had invented to sell drugs through the mail, basically. And he was very smart and had learned from Ross Ulbricht and the Silk Road. And for instance, you know, he had learned from Ross Ulbricht that yes, you, you use full disk encryption on your laptop, but you don't, like Ross Ulbricht, work in a public library, you know, or any <laughs> public place ever. You never even open your laptop outside of your home, which for him was like a you know, this house in the outskirts of Bangkok behind a wall and a gate. And, and so that, even, even once he was identified, was a real challenge that somehow they had to get his laptop open and unencrypted. Sorry, I'm skipping ahead. He, he was initially identified nonetheless. I mean, he had, as, as you say, he was smarter, he had better OPSEC, but he had messed up in the first days of Alpha Bay's time online. And its forums, when you registered for them, just in, in the very first days in 2014, long before anybody really cared about Alphabet, before it was you know, the top dark web market or the biggest in history, as it eventually became. When you signed up for the forums, you would get this welcome email that included his, uh, unbelievably, his Hotmail address, which was pimpalex91 at, at hotmail.com. And some researcher, I don't know who still, some, some source, some tipster, recorded that and held on to it, held, held on to that email for years and then eventually tipped off the DEA office in Fresno of all places in late 2016. And that is actually the, that was the first time that Alexander Kaz's name had come onto the radar of this, of any, of law enforcement at all. But, but this unlikely team in Fresno kind of got that tip and began the investigation. But even then, like they, they, that, that wasn't the, you know, the, the real breakthrough. It was since that, in some sense, seemed too good to be true. Like the prosecutors and the agents in Fresno looked at that and thought, like, is this really our guy? Is this really the kingpin of Alpha Bay? It almost seemed too easy. And they thought maybe this guy is getting set up. Maybe this, you know, it's the real creator of Alpha Bay is trying to frame Alexander Cause was a thought that they had, and they certainly didn't have enough to prosecute him. So it was actually then that they started to try to trace his cryptocurrency revenues on the blockchain and that is that was not easy either that that required real innovation in in tracing techniques but is what eventually confirmed that yes alexander cause was the kingpin of alpha bay had in fact so there's cashed out millions of dollars of revenues what we're seeing is a is a kind of real-time darwinian evolution on both sides law enforcement gets it realizes that there's drug sales they can't do anything about, assassinations they can't do anything about, and they struggle to find a way to get a handle on it. They get a handle. They do the prosecution. Everybody reads the, the FBI testimony and says, okay, we're not going to do that again. And, you know, gradually people learn to obfuscate, but they, they can't go back and change history. So their lack of obfuscation in the past has caused them problems. But they don't know all of the ways in which folks like Chainalysis can track their 
transactions, and that is special sauce that a lot of law enforcement agencies are trying to keep from becoming public. Because once they've once they've cracked it, they can find other ways to demonstrate that somebody is tied to the, the cryptocurrency. Well, right. I mean, I would say that this this problem of like you can't rewrite history, as you said, like that's especially true with cryptocurrency, of course, where. You know, it turns out that the blockchain is this trap for criminals. I think, as Nick Weaver would would point out, that you know, even if you if even if you're doing the kind of like cutting edge, smartest anonymity tricks that you can think of to make sure nobody can tie you to your Bitcoin addresses, at the time, years later, if Chainalysis or its clients figure out a new trick to to trace your coins, you can't change what's in the blockchain. I mean, that's yeah. the blockchain is this permanent and unerasable, unchangeable record of every transaction. So not only like do you have to worry about, you know, maybe leaking your email address and somebody holding on to it, but the blockchain is this super public thing that that records all your mistakes, even what didn't seem like mistakes to anybody at the time. And that is well, ultimately was, that shows up toward the end of the book. I and I I think there's been development since, but the government does a $3.3 billion forfeiture of yet another set of Bitcoin that were stolen from Silk Road by, I assume it's James Zhang, who's the, that we're talking about here. I don't think it's actually not. name was public. I mean, it's not. Uh, okay. Amazingly, yes. I mean, amazingly, James Zhang came to light long after the book was done. In fact, right before the book came out. And there was another guy who has the same story. Who um, also has three point three billion dollars or something yes, like that? Yes, oh, in, in fact, like I don't know, it, it, it all depends on the exchange rate of the day. But, but, right. but you know, I think you're referring to the story of a of a guy who was who was really only known still as Individual X, who hacked the Silk Road before it was taken down and stole seventy thousand bitcoins using some bug in the Silk Road, and then held on to them, probably because he knew or she, I should say that. If he or she cashed them out, that could be traced to a cryptocurrency exchange. So just like, you know, kind of out of fear, it seems, held on to those 70,000 Bitcoins for seven years until they were worth well over a billion dollars. And that's when Tigran Gambarian traced them nonetheless and knocked on his door and made him give them up in exchange for, you know, avoiding prosecution. But then just before the book came out, it turned, there was, I saw like a headline, I saw actually a, like a press release saying, this guy, James Strong, has same exact story, stole his money from the Silk Road, we traced it, we, we seized it, and I was like, oh, James Strong must be Individual X. But no, it turns out it was a second guy. And oh my God. This, the same story had happened. James Strong had actually stolen 50,000 Bitcoins, a little bit less, in fact. Um, but he did not get as sweet a deal. No, he did not. And, and the money was seized a year later, so it was worth more, even. So he goes down in history as... The IRS, in fact, actually, not just the IRS criminal investigation's biggest, second biggest, rather, cryptocurrency seizure, and Individual X was number three, but actually the second biggest seizure in DOJ history of money of any kind. That $3.3 billion is like, you know, you don't yep. typically seize that much cash. But but there is actually still another case we haven't, we haven't mentioned yet where, where, they, where IRS criminal investigators seized... I think 3.6 billion, and that's the Bitfinex hack, which was also traced, and you know that mystery was solved by some of the same characters in this book, and that happened just as I was kind of putting the book, you know, sending the book to press. So it's just mentioned in the epilogue, but in that case, 
these were a couple of money launderers in New York who had, you know, laundered like 120,000 bitcoins allegedly, and they were traced and now are being prosecuted. And they they are, in fact, that that case is the biggest seizure in Department of Justice history. So one one of the things that I think is to tie this to current policy, it's pretty clear that you can do an enormous amount of effective tracing if you can get occasional insights into who's moving, you know, into the details, the personal details of, of particular accounts. And that has probably driven the government interest in forcing know-your-customer rules on exchanges and on anybody who handles Bitcoin. The KYC is the flavor of the month because you don't need to, to trace every customer in order to be able to identify people in this milieu, but you do need to occasionally you know, light up the room with a flash. And that's what KYC for at least U.S. or Western-oriented exchanges does. Yeah, I mean, I think that law enforcement and regulators and prosecutors, that they have all realized that, like, yes, if you, you can guard these kind of few on-ramps and off-ramps onto the blockchain, and then even if, like, you just see money moving between these mysterious addresses, it doesn't really, like, that the you can identify people at the edges where they're trying to cash it out into money that, right. that they can spend. So, and, and the, the way that you do that, yes, is by like just cracking down on know your, with know your customer laws. And we're still seeing that play out where like the Russian exchanges like Chadex and Suex and Garantex that don't do that. And that therefore have like often served as the off ramps for ransomware groups and all kinds of other criminals have been sanctions and in some cases shut down as a result because it's, I think, quite difficult to run a business like this if you're just like a known criminal entity. And then that's, yeah, scares the rest of the exchanges into line and they, and these become like choke points for tracers, essentially, and make it very difficult to use cryptocurrency for anything without being identified. And the big commercial, the big kind of mass criminal bust that comes out of this comes from people who don't really understand how how fast the government is moving in this. And you talk a lot about this, the welcome to video case, which is South Korean server enabling sales of, you know, some pretty horrible child pornography. And and, and, and it's because there's Bitcoin involved, you're actually creating that actually created financial incentives to manufacture more of it. And so the government goes in and discovers that these people are basically going down to the ATM for Bitcoin to cash to get some Bitcoin and sending it straight off to the video master. And so it's like falling off a log to identify <laughs> hundreds of people in the United States and around the world who have been manufacturing child pornography or at least buying it. Yeah, I mean, part of what was interesting about that case is that it turned out that because the child sexual abuse materials market, this like child exploitation economy, hadn't generally used money in the past. It, you know, as some people described it to me, it, it had been like a kind of like a baseball card trading system. You you share what you got with somebody else and they give you theirs, you know. They were kind of behind the drug and cybercrime and hacking markets in their use of cryptocurrency and their understanding of how to obfuscate it. I mean at least the the creator of Alphabet, Alexander Kaz, he did try to obfuscate his money trails and it took some real 
you know, innovation from Chainalysis to figure out how to, and, and the FBI actually, to, to follow those trails nonetheless. But the users of, of this child exploitation video market, welcome to video, including the administrator, had none of that savvy because it was relatively new to be using cryptocurrency in that, you know, child exploitation world at all. And that made it actually like relatively simple for some of these, these tracers to take down not only the market, but to trace 337 of the market's uploaders and downloaders and hands-on abusers of children. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a, the, the tracing in that case is relatively simple, but the impact of it was just so gigantic. I mean, the human impact of that case and the complexity of actually just scaling up the raids and seizures and arrests and trials of that many people uh, made it incredibly complex. Yeah, and I guess it would be great if it turns out that it is not easy to monetize the production of child sexual abuse material. Can you can you tell me that people have learned the lesson in that community that it's not a good idea to try to sell what you make so that there are fewer incentives to make more of it? Well, I, you know, it's I don't know like what replaced Welcome to Video, and it may be that's not a world that's easy to explore as a reporter. It's easier to hear about it from the agents who and prosecutors who have like that who could legally even look at that stuff. So I don't know like if there's if that cat and mouse game is still playing out in that economy as well. And I kind of ex- expect that it must be, and that there probably is a savvier welcome to video type market out there. You know. It's, that may still be transacting in child exploitation for, for cryptocurrency and doing a better job of it. But, but you know, even Alphabay, which did this in a relatively sophisticated way, the cause still got caught and still died in a Thai yeah. jail cell just to spoil the ending of like, and so I would, you know, I would not advise anybody to use almost any cryptocurrency and expect to not be identified. You know, we can talk about like the few exceptions to that, but the rule, I would say, just more generally, is cryptocurrency is the opposite of anonymous. It is the opposite of untraceable. And you may think that you're being clever, but your mistakes that you, you're not even aware of, that perhaps even the, the cats in this cat and mouse game aren't even aware of, are written into the blockchain forever, and you're probably going to lose that game. Yeah, and you have to have a blockchain, otherwise people will spend the money three or four times. So you've got to have a mechanism for, for identifying yeah. sales of transactions. Well, okay, so let's let's try to wrap up by drawing a lesson or two out of this. I, you know, There are a lot of colorful characters, but I think, as you said, the main character at the end of the day of this book is Chainalysis and its competitors, the people who are working to develop capabilities to track transactions and working against folks who are trying to create new cryptocurrencies that are even harder to to trace. What do you think that the success of companies like Chainalysis actually means uh, for the future of the internet and for e-commerce? Are we going to give up on the idea of anonymous cryptographic cash or... Is that actually going to end up winning in the same way that Signal has has turned really good end-to-end encryption into a free consumer good? Yeah, I agree with you that Chainalysis in some ways is like the main driver of this story. And and when Chainalysis like adopted Sarah Micklejohn's techniques and polished them and made a tool out of them that people like 
Tigrin Gamberian and the others in law enforcement could use. That is like what made all of this happen. You know, in, in some ways, like the book would be about Chainalysis if Chainalysis was actually the one doing the investigations and the arrests and knocking down doors. But they're they're just the you know the nerds looking at the blockchain. So it's not as fun. And they're as probably they're probably tell. not talk, They probably don't want to talk at all about what they do. They shared you know quite quite a lot, I would say, and I okay. and some other stuff is you know you can probably see in the book like there is this secret technique that that they and IRS used to figure out the IP address of the Alphabase server that they didn't want me to know and that I nonetheless, you know, just figured out by the end of the book. You, you, I hope you'll see this that. Is, this, the, the, this is the tool that is, resembles governments setting up their own Tor nodes. And if you set up enough Tor nodes, you can, you can get IP addresses coming in and going out and eventually start to connect them. Pretty much exactly that, but except with Bitcoin instead. Yeah. So, or right. yeah, don't want to spoil that mystery for readers, but I'll, but I think you just did. Maybe <laughs> sorry. That is like that's okay. The uh, of course, like that was a secret technique that Chainalysis appears to have used, and that only came to light. I at some points had figured it out and was wrestling, you know, with myself late at night, like thinking, should I reveal this or am I burning a technique that's going to be used to take down the next child sexual abuse materials market or and ultimately, that technique leaked in something called like dark leaks on the dark web. Just as I was finishing the book, and I could kind of, with a clean conscience, tell that story of what the secret technique really was. But yeah, sorry, I would say that like I did figure out a lot about what Chainalysis does, but they, there's no doubt that they are coming up with secret techniques today, secret sauce, as you put it, that they won't wouldn't share with me or not sharing with anyone. There's now, as as I said, like a whole industry of these companies, TRM Labs and Elliptic and Cipher Trace that are all competing. I mean, it's it's in this cat and mouse game. There are there's now an industry of competing cats, which means that they are like they have money. They're recruiting the smartest people they can find to come up with the next trick to to de-anonymize transactions. So I think that that bodes really badly for anybody trying to be anonymous on a blockchain with a very, very few exceptions. Like maybe the one exception that we should talk about is Zcash, which may be the signal of cryptocurrency. It, it is it uses this thing that I sort of barely understand called zero knowledge proofs to basically encrypt the whole blockchain. But you can still prove that a transaction happens. You can avoid double spending, as as you as you referred to, by like referencing this blockchain. But while learning, you know, zero knowledge about the transactions, other than what you need to know to kind of assure that the transaction was not fraudulent or double spent. So that is potentially truly untraceable, anonymous digital cash. I mean, I know that I made this mistake once before in 2011, and maybe I'm making it again, <laughs> right. but. I don't know. We'll see. Like Zcash is not new. It's I think like six years, seven years old now, and it has not been adopted as much as I expected. Maybe and in part, I think that's because you know it's it's like a little bit toxic to be that untraceable, right. and exchanges are re reluctant. I think to to want to buy and sell Zcash, perhaps, and it will be more so if it starts to get adopted by criminals. So 
that I think is the only thing preventing that kind of true going dark again of the crypto of the of the blockchain. I, I that sounds right. It, it looks as though a lot of the innovation and enthusiasm for new cryptocurrencies went in the direction of Ethereum instead, because they put their effort into solving problems that people could see right away in in actually using their cryptocurrency, and we'll see that the enthusiasm for making it accessible to criminals is limited. It's real, but it's uh, the ideological motivation behind cryptocurrency is only one strain. And as the, as the VCs start to shape who succeeds and who fails, we're going to see a little bit less of that. And that may mean Z- Zcash never quite achieves escape velocity. Yeah, I think you might be right about that. I don't know. But then in it, it may like be enough for Zcash just to have a little niche where you can trade your Bitcoins for Zcash and out trade them out again. And that's enough to cut the trail. And I'm kind of surprised sometimes that I haven't seen more of that. I don't want to like give hints to any, you know, child abusers or terrible people on the dark web, but like it, that could still happen. And then that, that could be a totally new chapter in this, in this story. Or it could be that Zcash has some like fundamental flaw and it all gets cracked open again, you know, for all we know. Yeah, especially once we get to quantum cryptanalysis. So, okay, so that, then your assessment is we are in deeply ambiguous times where the, we'll call it the promise, I'm not sure it was that, but the, the promise of an anonymous cash clearly has not arrived, even though Bitcoin is, you know, has enormous mindshare. And we could be in this world for a decade or more because we don't know all the tools that the chain analysis market segment has. We don't know how good the purported successors to Bitcoin are. So it certainly sounds like a caveat emptor world at best for people who want to use cryptocurrency in ways that law enforcement or government in general doesn't approve of. Yeah, I mean, I would say that for the foreseeable future, there are kind of like three camps here where there are the people who are doing like legit, you know, if you could call it that stuff with cryptocurrency, like speculative investments, or they're using cryptocurrency as like a better sort of wire transfer internationally or something. And then there is the camp of like North Korean hackers and Russian ransomware actors who maybe know that they can be traced, but they don't care because they're in a non-extradition country and they're getting identified all the time, but there's just nothing that Western law enforcement can do about it. That's a, an important, you know, maybe group to name as well. And then there are maybe some people in between who still, you know, are in extradition countries or in the West and and still think that they're clever enough to stay ahead of the analysis of the world. And probably are in trouble. Yep. And, you know, maybe law enforcement will develop ways to report all those Russians who have all that money to Russian authorities for mobilization, and they'll end up in Ukraine and we'll be able to get them there. <laughs> well, that's an idea. Yeah, you, I hope you've shared that with, with Putin. <laughs> I, 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 well, I, I, and, and the people who have access to, to Putin's files. So, okay, this was great, Andy. I really appreciate it. It was a terrific book. It's got narrative drive. All the stories are fun. None of them have completely unambiguous endings, to my mind, because we are, we've entered into yet another period where we don't know how this is going to turn out, and it'll take at least a decade to figure it out. So I'm looking forward to your 
next book on how this all plays out. Well, thank you, Stuart. I had a feeling you would enjoy this one. I appreciate that you had me on to talk about it. I hope that I can write that next book and get the hat trick of being the first to ever come on to talk about three books on your show. All right. It's a standing invitation. The book is Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency by Andy Greenberg. For our listeners, if you want to send us comments, feedback, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Rate the show. Leave us a review. We'll read your review on the air. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been bonus episode 438 of the Cyber Law Podcast.